This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. So let's get to our daily check on COVID-19. Dr. Anthony Harris, he is WorkCare's Chief Innovation Officer and Associate Medical Director, on-site clinical operations. He leads the company's COVID-19 clinical response team based in Chicago. That is a city and a state of Illinois that is seeing uh, virus cases spike. He joins us there from Chicago. Dr. Harris, nice to have you here. How are you? And give us, you know, a little bit of a feel of what's going on in Chicago right now and what you're seeing on the ground. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Carol. And yeah, it's, you know, where the rubber meets the road in terms of people out and about, you're, you're, we're noticing a difference, right? The restaurants are shut down again. Mm-hmm. Um, people are kind of in that mindset of, you know, the, the quarantine um, that we were used to back in the spring. And, you know, the, the number one thing that um, we're trying to spread the word about is these large gatherings in the home. Uh, you know, it's happening in the Midwest. You look at Wisconsin, you look at uh, what's happening here in Illinois, and the mood is very somber as people are realizing finally that, you know, th- this is serious. This is uh, a spike that we're seeing sustained and that it's not going anywhere. And personal behavior uh, is playing a factor. And so people are we're hopefully people are starting to wake up to that fact uh, so they can act accordingly in their homes and in the community. How could a mandate from the federal government kind of affect things at this point, in your view? You know, if we look across the pond, we can kind of glimpse and learn from what's happened overseas, you know, Paris and France. Uh, Look what happened in England um, and the U.K., right? They're seeing numbers per capita far greater than what we're seeing. So Mm -hmm. the impact there is tremendous on a day-to-day basis, seven-rolling-day average. Um, And so uh, we're looking to see if those mandates that they put in place, curfews, et cetera, uh, will have an impact. Um, We hope they will, but we haven't seen clear evidence as as it is stands yet. Um, some of the things that we're seeing in the states play out uh, and hopefully are protective uh, are the mandates that when you go to mass transit, you better have that mask on and you're not getting on, right? right. Uh, those are the type of measures that will indeed play a factor in helping protect the general public. Dr. Harris, what about treatments in terms of COVID patients? And I know I've had a lot of conversations with um, other doctors and folks in the medical care community, and we are definitely, we've learned a lot in the last seven to eight months when it comes to dealing with different types of COVID-19 cases. We've made progress, but I'm still trying to get my head around, you know, the increase in hospitalizations. I mean, how bad are the cases that are coming into the hospitals? And and are you able to, are you finding that the medical community has a better grasp on, you know, preventing essentially these patients from dying? Uh, Yes, they do. Uh, First and foremost, I think we've learned a lot, uh, like you said, uh, since this all began. And in the hospitals, when you talk to the uh, frontline hospital workers that are in the, the docs and the nurses that are in the ICUs, taking care of these individuals that have severe cases that are on mechanical ventilation, they've learned a lot, right? Uh, If you, uh, back when I spoke with my colleagues in the hospitals um, uh, in the spring and the summer, you know, it was a a rough time. People would go on the ventilator. They would try to manage them as we have managed patients in the past with similar presentations from a um, uh, pneumonia standpoint, right? Um, And people were still, uh, you know, uh, succumbing to the illness. And so what we learned is how do you manage, what is the protocol, uh, and what works best uh, for these specific people that are coming down with 
uh, SARS-CoV-2. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the death, uh, death that we're seeing was predicted, um, was predicted back in the summer when we anticipated a spike in cases with a 30-day lag between the spikes that we're seeing and the death rate. And that's starting to play out. And hopefully we'll, we'll get control of it. Um, but certainly the medicine, the treatments and, and whatnot have improved. It's just a tidal wave of cases right now that hospitals are trying to keep up with. Yeah, I feel like it's the ebbs and flows, if you will, and the highs and lows of COVID-19. We did get some highs yesterday when we heard about uh, the uh, Pfizer treatment and a vaccine, a burst of good news, finding some extraordinary results. And Eli Lilly also granted U.S. emergency clearance for its antibody therapy. Eli, Lee, Eli Lilly, excuse me, Chairman and CEO David Ricks, he caught up with our team over on Bloomberg TV, and they talked about the company's coronavirus antibody therapy uh, that was granted that emergency use. But I've got to say that Dave Ricks also said it will still be needed even if a COVID vaccine is developed. He talked with Tom Keen, Jonathan Farrow, and Lisa Bromowitz. Check it out. We'll still need medicines like our antibody therapy to help those that will still get sick, hopefully at a much lower rate as we approach something like um, herd immunity, but you'll still have endemic disease and we'll need um, therapies. We ha- There's many examples where this is true, yeah. including common respiratory viruses like RSV. And that, of course, was Eli Lilly, Chairman and CEO Dave Ricks, talking with our, our colleagues over on Bloomberg TV. Dr. Harris, when you look at the treatments that are coming down, when you look at the news yesterday, uh, what does that say to you about maybe where we are, the timeline for getting COVID-19 under control? Sure. So yesterday's news was very positive, right? And for a number of reasons. First and foremost, obviously, for public sentiment in terms of understanding where the progression is of vaccines, uh, potential vaccine uh, to be to be released, right? But uh, to me, what it points out uh, in terms of yesterday's release and the positive sentiment uh, is that we were anticipating uh, from Pfizer exactly what has happened and transpired in November. Uh, this was back in the summer that we were anticipating that phase three clinical trials had started. Um, they were showing positive early data uh, in terms of results. And, uh, and then now that we're seeing more uh, positive news around clinical outcomes with, their, with the uh, vaccine, um, this speaks very well and hopes that the timeline that we anticipate the vaccine to be released next year will play out well. And I say next year because I'm speaking to the general public timeline of being able to uh, access the vaccine most likely. And if we look at that timeline based upon H1N1 uh, and, and other releases of vaccines, it won't probably be until May, June of next year that we see uh, the vaccine widely distributed to the general public and the workforce. And that's what we're gearing up for here at WorkCare, uh, partnering with state health officials to do so. Well, tell us about the work that you guys are doing, because that's specifically you work with officials, you work with companies, right, in terms of managing health care. You got it. Yeah, we're classic occupational and environmental medicine. We're all we're physician led, been around for 35 years. And we've seen, unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, pandemics like this play out before and been a part of it. Um, and so our job uh, in the workplace is to protect the workers, first and foremost, from injuries with trip and falls as well as exposures. And so during this period of COVID-19, it's exceptional um, that we've been uh, able to uh, kind of pivot uh, what we do a little bit in terms of providing digital platforms for screening workers that we started back in March. We've done well over 4 million of those in the workforce. And we're launching, you know, strategies to help protect the workforce uh, with uh, testing regimens. 
and um, it's it's working. You know, we know that it's working with the universities that we talk to. It's working with the clients that we have with large businesses, and so we're we're really fortunate to be in this position to help uh, so many people uh, during this critical time. Where do you see testing going? And I ask. I mean, my company's been incredible, and we have access to testing, and they take care of everything. Um, I had a daughter who was trying to get a test yesterday and was sitting online. Uh, you know, and I just wonder, you know, are we going to get to a point where you just wake up in the morning, and you take a test? Is that where this is going or no? You know, if we look at the mass market, if we look at the, um, you know, what we're known for in the U.S., which is innovation, right? Um, we're seeing devices that are uh, bending the cost curve and increasing the simplicity uh, of using these tests. And so a home test now is available for a, a rapid test molecular based it's called isothermic amplification but in short instead of having to do pcr with heavy machinery or big machinery that's complex to do it is simple as plugging something into your usb port of your computer swabbing your just the front part of your nose the nasal passages uh, and then waiting 20 minutes to get your results and you can do that at home so that technology exists today. Uh, it's been EUA um, approved by FDA. And uh, we're going to see more of that uh, double down as we move forward because, again, we'll be dealing with this for months to come. Uh, if you really are trying to look uh, across the horizon at uh, how long we'll be dealing with COVID, and Andrew, uh, excuse me, uh, Anthony Fauci has said this, COVID may never go away, even with the vaccine, because of the uh, period of time in which the uh, immunity from a vaccine will wane. And that may be three months or six months, but certainly we're going to be in this cycle for some time to come. And it certainly does feel like we are on the cusp of some changes when it comes to healthcare. I'm just listening to you talk, and I feel like more and more technology is getting involved. You know, we're able to kind of monitor things. Is that where it's all going? It really is, you know, and, you know, this may be all a turn for uh, the better in terms of public health. Uh, regarding not just COVID-19, but other diseases that we deal with on a, a seasonal basis, right? Uh, there's a myriad of them, but obviously everyone knows flu. So, um, you know, how we approach the flu uh, on a seasonal basis will be enhanced and improved upon because of the impact we're seeing from COVID-19. Uh, the one thing we can learn from, again, our neighbors across the uh, pond is that uh, these type of events uh, make a pivotal shift in how we do uh, and maintain health in the community and in the workplace. Uh, and Korea was uh, uh, one of the examples where they were hit hard in um, uh, SARS-CoV-1 uh, back in 2003, mm -hmm. and, they learned, and they learned a lot, right? I've talked to um, some of the leading physicians over there, and um, they were able to uh, have in place quickly things that they learned from 2003. And so likewise, we're going to be better off in terms of preparedness um, for this type of event uh, far into the future. So preparedness also means what? You know, thinking about the other um, viruses that are out there that might ultimately impact our community, it means we need to have kind of a global initiatives to kind of get the things in place, right? So that if we need another vaccine, it's not the race like we saw today. Dr. Harris, thank you. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's get to a story that's in Bloomberg Business Week. It's about big tech. It actually has uh, an element to it that pertains to the upcoming new administration in the White House. It is about big tech, which we know has often been targeted by President Trump. It could have a different kind of Washington problem under a Biden administration. Let's get to Joshua Brustein, technology writer at Business Week on the phone in New York City. Uh, Joshua, good to have you here with us. Tell us what's going on, how we know... Big tech has certainly been on President Trump's radar. How might it be different when it comes to Joe Biden? 
Well, thanks for having me. I think that the first thing that will be very obvious is that the tone of the conversation around technology uh, will change. The president um, has repeatedly harped on this alleged problem of anti-conservative bias at Twitter and Google and Facebook. Um, There's no real evidence for that. I do not think it's something that President Biden will focus on much. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think that he will be under a fair amount of pressure from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to pursue a pretty aggressive agenda that would target big tech's economic power um, in the form of stronger antitrust laws and stronger antitrust enforcement. Right. So it's not going to be like a free lunch. It's different from... I'm not going to say it was a free lunch under uh, President Barack Obama, but it's not going to be that kind of relationship either, correct? Yeah, I think in in talking to people um, (laughs) in the Democratic Party, a lot of them do kind of look back and say, well, maybe it was kind of a free lunch during the Obama administration, (laughs) and we want to make sure it's not that way this time. Um, Yeah, I think that, you know, the Democratic Party is also very skeptical of big tech and very angry with, Mm. um, with the largest companies in Silicon Valley as are Republicans, they're just angry for different reasons. Meaning what specifically? Well, the the Republicans have turned um, big tech into a sort of culture war struggle in the same way that they have turned the um, supposed media bias into a kind of right versus left, um, uh, right versus left argument. And the Democratic Party wants to look at you know, they're worried about the economic consolidation by large corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, and big tech is sort of the prime example for that. You saw even during the Trump administration, a, a pretty thorough antitrust investigation carried out by the House Judiciary um, Subcommittee on Antitrust. And I think that will lay the groundwork for an attempt to pass new, harsher antitrust laws. That will probably be kind of the main venue for the conflict. Hey, Joshua, just quickly, just got about 40 seconds here, 45 seconds. Section 230, I feel like we're going to be talking a lot about that, though. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Section 230 is the law that allows um, websites to be uh, protected from lawsuits based on what their users publish. And this has been a, a major issue for the president. Um, Democrats are also skeptical of it, but I think it'll probably take a backseat to some other priorities. They think that antitrust can deal with a lot of the same problems in maybe a different way. Well, I'm going to put this story out on Twitter. Check it out at Bloomberg Business Week online in the magazine. Joshua Brustein, thank you so much. Technology writer at Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Tuesday. Safe to say uh, a little bit of a wait what moment yesterday. It's picked up some momentum on this Tuesday. It's about the Republican effort to overturn Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election. This is among our top stories on the Bloomberg and here at Bloomberg Business Week. Bloomberg News uh, national political reporter Tyler Pager. He joins us on the phone from Wilmington, Delaware. Hey, Tyler, so good to have you here. I just kind of want to make sense of what's going on. First of all, we just heard from the president-elect, Joe Biden. You're in Wilmington. He's in Wilmington. And he just made some comments, uh, obviously, about uh, the Supreme Court and the news we got there. But more specifically, he took some questions from reporters about the transition, how it's going. Uh, and I'm just curious, you know, where are we in this process? Because it seems like the Republican side continues to sow seeds of doubt when it comes to the outcome of the election. 
the election's been called, correct? Yeah, that's correct. News outlets have called, uh, TV networks, Associated Press have called the election for Joe Biden. Um, it's pretty clear that, that he won. Um, but Trump uh, has not uh, conceded. And so the official transition um, designated by uh, a federal employee at the General Services Administration has not yet begun that process. Um, and so today, Joe Biden, president-elect, has received, received quite a few questions from reporters about his, his thoughts about the fact that Trump has not conceded and, and Republicans are backing him up in, in this fight to try to overturn the results of the election. Well, so make some sense. You know, what's the significance, Tyler, of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had been pretty quiet, it feels like, after the election outcome when he said on the Senate floor yesterday that the president is, quote, 100 percent within his rights to challenge the election results. I mean, he is, to be fair, right, in terms of the law. Um, But what does it mean for Mitch McConnell to come out and say something? Yeah, I mean, it gives Trump cover from the Republican Party to continue with these legal fights. Um, and it shows that the Republican Party is fully behind Trump, despite him losing um, both the Electoral College and, and the popular vote. And it delays the process for an official transition to begin. Joe Biden does not have access to government funding to pursue the transition. He doesn't have access um, to the State Department for secure phone lines with foreign leaders. He's already begun those calls. But there is a lot of formal kind of lines of communication that are opened up once the transition begins. And without that designation, um, Joe Biden is, is kind of out there on his own. Today, he was pretty actually zen about the, the conflict and the controversy. He said, look, we're moving forward. We're focused on, on, on building our transition. He said, like, we, we, want, we want this official process to begin, but it's not hamstringing us um, that, that it has not. Right. He didn't say that a lack of funds, for instance, were preventing them from moving forward. And he also talked about expectations of having some cabinet uh, members, you know, maybe I think putting out some names come November, correct, this month. And also yeah, didn't so seem to be too. He would hope to have. Yeah, go ahead. Um, um, he said he would hope to have some around Thanksgiving. Our reporting shows that it's probably going to be mostly after Thanksgiving that we start to get them. Um, but I think we'll get some of the senior White House staff uh, shortly. So. What are your expectations? What are you hearing from your sources about kind of what this all means, where we go? What's what's is there a date we're all just going to say? Is it when the states officially call the elections that this is done? Yeah, I mean, that that, the timing is is really what the um, is what we're waiting to to see. Uh, Joe Biden did not give any hint of of when he thinks that'll be that'll be called transition team had a call last night with reporters and they said that they might pursue legal action to expedite this process. Today, Joe Biden kind of threw cold water on that and said that, that he did not seem that was necessary. Um, and so it, it really uh, depends on, on kind of what, if Trump concedes how these legal fights that he's, you know, filing lawsuits around the country, how they go. Most of them have been thrown out and disregarded, um, but there are recount processes um, likely in Georgia and in Wisconsin. So these are processes that, that have to kind of go through um, to the end, and, and then maybe we get that decision, or it's, or it's until the Electoral College votes, which, which doesn't come till next month. So there's a lot of points in this process where it, it could come to an end, but uh, Trump and the Republicans could drag this on for quite some time. To be fair, and again, I'm kind of, you know, asking you to go back to your sources. I mean, if it was the shoe on the other foot, and it was this close a race, could we have anticipated that a Democratic, you know, party would be doing exactly the same? Because it 
was close or really wasn't that close. Yeah, I mean, it was it was closer in 2016 when Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump. And though she did not concede the night of, she came back the next morning and conceded. Um, I think the difference here is Trump has been um, very clear that he was going to cast doubt on the results of the election um, if it did not go his way for months. This is an mm-hmm. argument and a fight he's been telegraphing. Um, and, and Joe Biden has not been doing the same. And so um, I think it most uh, and even some, you know, Republicans have have moved on. Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Ben Sass, senators from across the country have recognized Joe Biden's victory. Former President George W. Bush, a Republican, has has also called and congratulated Biden. Um, and a number of former Republican members of Congress have spoken out um, against uh, Trump and the Republicans' actions and said, you know, the party needs to acknowledge the results of the election. So I don't think that we could expect that Biden or a Democrat would have taken the same tack, just given the rhetoric that both parties had kind of been telegraphing for the months leading up to this election. What's next on the president-elect Biden's calendar? So he has uh, a lot of meetings. They have not really given a full public schedule, but we expect um, that he continues to meet with his transition team as they build out the government um, and 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 possibly get some announcements quite soon uh, about some of those senior staff positions. All right. Well, busy. No, no doubt about it. A lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Hey, Tom, I know you sound you sound exhausted, but that's to be yeah, understood. Yeah, it's just a little crazy. As, as you know, we're there's so there's. Uh, um, so much going on uh, across across the government uh, as they try to work through not only these legal fights and, and, and the transition, but really starting to put in place policy and people to begin this next administration. Yeah, exactly. No, I totally understand. Um, great stuff. And I know uh, you are busy. So thanks for finding some time for us. Bloomberg News, national political reporter Tyler Pager joining us on the phone from Wilmington, Delaware. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week Small Business Survival Guide, there's a new report out that uh, finds that hundreds of local and state relief funds have saved hundreds of thousands of businesses. Let's get into that with Bloomberg News editor Demetra Kessanides. She's on the phone in New York City. Kennedy Smith is senior researcher at the Independent Business Initiative at the advocacy group Institute for Local Self-Reliance. She joins us uh, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Demetra, uh, let's kick it off with you. I mean, this is really a timely report because uh, we really got to get an idea of how small businesses are doing. Um, how are they? And and tell us how this came to your attention. Well, um, I mean, you know, they're still struggling. And I think what was really enlightening about this was the fact that so many other resources were able to step up and step in. And rather than just provide, you know, additional funding to businesses, really were the difference between surviving mm-hmm. and not surviving at times when the federal programs, as we all know, really, you know, were just kind of dogged with problems, uh, not enough funding and slowness and questions over it all. So the report was something Nick Leiber, our amazing freelancer who covers small business so astutely for us. Um, was uh, in touch with Kennedy and the Institute, was aware of the, the possibility that that report was coming recently and decided, you know, to look at what their findings were. So um, that is how it came about. And they have been looking at this and continue to look at it, uh, sort of um, as was described in an article that we did recently, a living, breathing sort of look at right. how this is all going and moving forward. So that. Kennedy, come on in on it. You know, give us a little bit more in depth. Um, Demetra really setting uh, the stage there really nicely. But tell us a little, bit, a little bit more about what you looked into and what you found. 
Sure, I'm happy to. We we started this actually not not with sort of the the, the goal of doing some kind of a, a longitudinal analysis, but of simply putting together a list that might help local businesses um, find um, sources of assistance as the as this pandemic was kind of rolling out. Um, and then it kind of grew and grew and grew. And as it grew, we've been able to go back and look and see uh, different sort of patterns of what kinds of programs communities have been launching, which ones are are more, are more effective than others, um, and in that have seen sort of some cycles that businesses are, are, are experiencing. Um, obviously, in the first days of the pandemic, when um, uh, shutdown orders were first issued, um, businesses scrambled very quickly to find money to pay, you know, the next month's rent. Um, and at that point, there was no federal assistance available, and so communities were very innovative in finding ways to cobble together money from uh, economic development funds that had been earmarked for something else or for um, you know, postponing public improvements projects they've been planning on. Uh, we've even found instances of a, a, a local city council that um, decided, all the members decided to, to basically um, 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 forgo their salaries for a period of time to um, help cobble together some money. Uh, communities literally doing bake sales and things to make this happen. It's remarkable. So, um, well, yeah, so- really remarkable. But then after that, you know, we sort of, we, we, we actually lost some businesses that couldn't make it two or three months and the communities didn't have the financial support yet to, to sustain them. Um, and so uh, there's sort of a second wave of funding that communities have put together, which has been geared towards helping businesses pivot, help them, uh, you know, learn to be omni-channel uh, businesses and reach customers in a variety of ways and really rethink their business plans. So in that, we're seeing a combination of technical assistance and financial assistance. And now with winter coming, we're seeing an entire new wave of programs coming out. uh, That's what I was just going to say. I was going to ask. I mean, um, it's continuing then, and they're finding ways to keep this going. This is meant as a report then, from what you said, Kennedy, for small businesses to actually get their hands on this report and look and see maybe what resources they then can turn to and pass. Um, is that how it was pulled together ultimately as something that the small businesses themselves can really rely on as a as a guide almost? Yeah, well, that was certainly our original intent, um, and it still is being used that way uh, quite a bit, and, and we continue to update it, you know, so it, it, it continues to grow. But what we've actually found uh, some of the major users of it are uh, local officials and state officials who are looking through to see what other communities have done, how they funded their programs, how they've administered them, how they've been able to roll money out quickly, and how they've, they've uh, found ways to meet the needs of uh, particular types of businesses whose um, needs were not met by the Paycheck Protection Program um, or that don't have other resources available to them, don't have a close banking relationship, for example, um, finding ways to help get money to them and keep them alive. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And I, I, I'm curious what you're hearing from the small business uh, community about what the winter months look like as we watch those rising virus cases and we continue to see cities really kind of go back into lockdown. And just got about 30 seconds here. Yeah, I mean, I think they're terrified and states are taking action, even though Congress hasn't yet done so. A couple of states just in the past week, Maryland, Massachusetts, Ohio, for example, have dug back into their CARES Act funding and allocated more for a new wave of small business funding to try to keep them going uh, over the next couple of months. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Listen, thank you so much, Kennedy. I appreciate your time. Kennedy Smith, she's senior researcher at the Independent Business Initiative at the Advocacy Group Institute for Local Self-Reliance with a check on funds, state relief funds that uh, have really raised a lot of money, $8.5 billion for small businesses. Our thanks to her as well as Dimitra Kessaniti. She is editor at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in New York City. 
I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, a little bit under 11 minutes until we uh, ring the closing bell here on the Tuesday session on Wall Street. Time for the drive to the close. Sarah Moreno is with us, Managing Director and Emerging Markets Equity Portfolio Manager at the Registered Investment Advisor Genesis Genesun Associates. Let me try that again. Jenison Associates. They've got uh, about $203.7 billion in assets under management. She joins us on the phone from Boston. I'll get it out. I think I'm thinking yes, and I was thinking Genesis. We were talking rock bands. I, I, that's that's what I'm saying, Sarah. That's my no excuse. Um, how are you? Uh, how do you see this market environment right now? Well, I think, it, you know, it's certainly the excitement of the vaccine is trumping everything. And I think that's, um, you know, going to, in the short term, have some correction in the market in terms of who the winners and losers are. But as a fundamental bottom-up active house that's growth biased, we believe in the long-term secular growth opportunities that we see across emerging markets. And that's what we're focused on. Which are, what are those long-term <laughs> themes when it comes to emerging markets? Well, I think what we've seen uh, with, with the pandemic and it's an acceleration of the ongoing, just the shift from offline to online. Um, you know, we saw it in how uh, consumers adapted to the pandemic with things like grocery delivery, e-commerce, cloud computing, online video, online education, telemedicine and gaming really being the early winners. But it really just accelerated a trend that was already happening before the pandemic. And we see that given how low penetration has been, especially in emerging markets, that this is a long-term structural underpin that is further underpinned by the growth and the expansion of the emerging market middle class. Hey, I just want to mention, I'm looking at the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. It's up about 5.7% this year. That compares with the MSCI World Index, which is up about 6.4%. Just wanted to put that out there. So Sarah, though, let me ask you about emerging markets. And emerging markets, I think, are China, the largest emerging markets. I don't know whether you call it emerging slash developed or trying to be developed. But I think about the news where China really just stopped what would have been the world's largest IPO. I'm talking about Ant Financial and what it says about China and its comfort with innovations and companies that might become big Chinese tech companies and then kind of reining them in. Does that worry you about some of those names within that market? Right. Well, um, you know, I, I can't specifically comment on specific stocks. But, but the trend, like what does big, what kind of environment yeah. and what kind of message does that send to global investors? Well, I think that, you know, it, it, it's about globally, there has been a trend to deregulate some of these big platforms. Um, it's happening in the, in the West as well. Look at what's happened to, to some of the social media platforms. So there's definitely a consideration and a factor. But I think the reality is, is that there are companies out there that are giving consumers access to something they don't, they don't otherwise have, be it to, you know, apparel, to retail, to, to products online, to financial services, to access to financial services that they don't otherwise have because they don't even have a bank account. So I think there's a balance here, and the opportunity is certainly there for the companies that can address it. Are there certain emerging markets, or is it really just a company play? And I do wonder, like, do you look at certain regions of the world when it comes to emerging markets? 
we take a bottom-up access approach, so yeah. it's about the companies. And so it's about identifying the companies that are serving an unmet need um, or really transforming um, and disrupting, you know, existing brick-and-mortar or existing technologies. And that's where we see that disruption innovation is really replenishing the um, investment opportunities across emerging markets. What's the healthcare play in China that you like? And I know you do like Chinese healthcare stocks, uh, generally speaking. So what's the healthcare play? How does it contrast with a healthcare play in a developed market like the U.S.? So what's interesting about what's happening in China is that you have a, a market that is getting older, sicker, but also richer. And the opportunity is much bigger because you have, well, you have more older people. By 2050, you're going to have 487 million people over the age of 65 in China. They're getting sicker. You have 4.3 million new cases of cancer diagnosed in China. That's twice the level of the United States. So they're getting much sicker, but they're also getting richer. China only spends 5% of GDP on healthcare versus 17% in the U.S. So the wrap-up for opportunity posts a very aggressive reform agenda to not only create a method to reimburse, um, but also to create innovation in the market. It's driving incredible, you know, talent and, and capital into this um, into this subsegment of China healthcare, such as biotechnology. So it sounds like healthcare, e-commerce, those are some of the interesting trends that you guys have certainly targeted. Yes then that's, that's really serving that emerging middle class. To think, put numbers on it, there's going to be 1 million, 1 billion more people entering the emerging market middle class by 2024. 544 million of those will be from India and 322 million of those will be from China. That Chinese cohort, that's the size of the U.S. population. I know. When you talk India and China, they're like just on a scale all their own. Does this, do you think ultimately, you know, we've been talking about the rise of certainly the Chinese domestic uh, middle class for a long, long time. And I know global multinationals, whether they're based in the U.S. or based in Europe, you know, have been just salivating over them. But are we, when it comes to, you know, investing in emerging markets, do you ultimately see the play continues to be and will increasingly be domestic companies in those emerging markets? Yes, I think it's, it's, it's the, mo- the most alpha generating way to do it is to do it directly in the companies that are, you know, that are coming, that are being generated locally, that understand the local consumer base, that understand the regulatory environment, that understand how to function within the markets that they're in. And also that the fact that some of these companies are aggregating the opportunity when you take about, think about the players in Latin America, you know, it's they're aggregating an entire continent and, and offering an entire population, a continent, not just one country, all the e-commerce, fintech, digital payment services that that, um, that those consumers need and want. So a quick question, and you got to be quick. We have a, a listener writing in and asking, do you think uh, portfolio managers are not visiting companies now and how that might affect fund performance? Is that a handicap? Just quickly. Amazingly, it has not. I would say Zoom has been uh, amazing, and it's also a blessing in disguise, given that I do China hours. I'm, I'm literally on all the time. It's both a combination of we need the information and companies are making themselves readily accessible. I have more calls than I have hours in the day. It has not been problematic at all. All right. Good to uh, get a response on that. Thank you so much. Sarah Moreno, Managing Director, Emerging Markets, Equity Portfolio Manager, Jenison Associates, joining us on the phone in Boston. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.